It's good to be back at Covenant, but uh, there are a lot of new faces here, and the old faces don't look like I remember them. I don't know what's happened uh, to all you people over here in West Little Rock. Uh, it seems like I, when I look in the mirror, still look like I did uh, 30 years ago, but then I'm probably self-deceived. I appreciate the opportunity to come and speak to you on this uh, particular uh, Sunday when you are celebrating uh, Mercy uh, Ministries. About 13 years ago, after church planting in different states, uh, Susan and I returned to what was her home. She was born and uh, raised here and what I consider to be uh, my home as well because I grew up on the mission field in Ecuador and so Little Rock, Arkansas has basically been my American home and I'm glad that we made that decision. Originally I was going to start another church but after being back in the area for a couple weeks I got a call from a lawyer who had uh, been in our previous uh, church in uh, North Little Rock, and he said he knew why God had brought me back to Little Rock, and I said, well, why is that? And he said, well, God has been leading me to start an immigration law practice, and I would like for you to come and help me with that. And would you be willing uh, to do that? Well, when we left Little Rock, there was no immigrant community to speak of, so this was all a surprise and very new to me. And uh, I agreed to help this man out, but one of the things that we found uh, very quickly was that there wasn't any money to be made in family-based immigration law. And so after about a year, he backed out, but during that time, we found that a nonprofit organization could offer uh, those kinds of services. Uh, for a limited fee to its clients. And so with his help and the help of some other men, uh, Bill Scholl, for instance, we formed uh, a board and uh, started what is now known as the Evangelical Alliance for Immigration Services. And basically what we do is based on Leviticus 19, 33, and 34, where it says, When a stranger resides with you in your land, you shall not do him wrong. The stranger who resides with you shall be to you as a native among you, and you shall love him as yourself, for you were aliens in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. And so for the last 11 years, what we have been doing is helping to keep immigrant families together by providing them with uh, legal documentation and by helping immigrant families be reunited as well. And the Lord has blessed that ministry greatly. I have more work uh, than I can uh, possibly do, as you can uh, well imagine, knowing what the immigrant population in Little Rock uh, is. And there are very few of us who are doing this kind of work in a way that is affordable to the immigrant, because keep in mind that the average immigrant family of four only makes about $25,000 a year. And the fees that have to be paid for immigration paperwork can be enormous and overwhelming uh, for these people. So we do what we do in order to make it possible for them to gain the legal benefits that they are entitled to. And Covenant has been supporting us now for two or three years, and I want to express my thanks to you for that support. 
Because of what I do, the, I chose a text that has to do with an immigrant woman, Ruth, who was a Moabitist, who immigrated to Israel. And I'm not going to say a lot about immigration per se, but I thought it was appropriate to choose a text from this book of the Bible. And it's a fairly lengthy uh, text, but I didn't see any way of cutting it down, so please bear with me as we read from Ruth chapter 3, verse 1, through chapter 4, verse 12. This is what God says. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, shall I not seek security for you, that it may be well with you? And now is not Boaz our kinsman with whose maids you were? Behold, he winnows barley at the threshing floor tonight. Wash yourself, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your best clothes, and go down to the threshing floor, but do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. And it shall be when he lies down that you shall notice the place where he lies, and you shall go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what you shall do. And she said to her, All that you say I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did according to all that her mother-in-law had commanded her. When Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. And she came secretly and uncovered his feet and lay down. And it happened in the middle of the night that the man was startled and bent forward, and behold, a woman was lying at his feet. And he said, Who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your maid. So spread your covering over your maid, for you are a close relative. And then he said, May you be blessed of the Lord, my daughter. You have shown your last kindness to be better than the first by not going after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you whatever you ask. For all my people in the city know that you are a woman of excellency. And now it is true that I am a close relative. However, there is a relative closer than I. Remain this night, and when morning comes, if he will redeem you, good. Let him redeem you. But if he does not wish to redeem you, then I will redeem you as the Lord lives. Lie down until morning. So she lay at his feet until morning and rose before one could recognize another. And he said, Let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. Again he said, Give me the cloak that is on you and hold it. So she held it, and he measured six measures of barley and laid it on her. Then she went into the city, and when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, How did it go, my daughter? And she told her all that the man had done for her. And she said, These six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said, Do not go to your mother-in-law empty-handed. And then she said, Wait, my daughter, until you know how this matter turns out, for the man will not rest until he has settled it today." Now Boaz went up to the gate and sat down there, and behold, the close relative of whom Boaz spoke was passing by. So he said, Turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and he sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit down here. So they sat down. And then he said to the closest relative, Naomi, who has come back from the land of Moab, has to sell the piece of land which belonged to your brother, to our brother Elimelech. So I thought to inform you, saying, Buy it before those who are sitting here and before the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one but you to redeem it, and I am after you. And he said, I will redeem it. 
Then Boaz said, On the day that you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you must also acquire Ruth, the Moabitess, the widow of the deceased, in order to raise up the name of the deceased on his inheritance. And the closest relative said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I jeopardize my own inheritance. Redeem it for yourself. You may have the right of redemption, for I cannot redeem it. Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning the redemption and the exchange of land to confirm any matter. A man removed his sandal and gave it to another, and this was the manner of attestation in Israel. So the closest relative said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, and he removed his sandal. And then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses today that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilian and Malam. Moreover, I have acquired Ruth the Moabitess, the widow of Malon, to be my wife in order to raise up the name of the deceased on his inheritance, so that the name of the deceased may not be cut off from his brothers or from the court of his birthplace. You are witnesses today. And all the people who were in the court and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, both of whom built the house of Israel, and may you achieve wealth in Ephrata and become famous in Bethlehem. Moreover, may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, through the offspring which the Lord shall give you by this young woman. May the Lord add his blessing to this reading of his word. I stopped by at a friend's house uh, last week. These uh, People spend a lot of money and effort on their landscaping, and it shows. It's uh, a beautiful place. But what caught my attention as I was walking up to their house this time is a little flower that was growing in a crack in the driveway. Right there in the middle of all that concrete where you wouldn't expect it was this beautiful little flower growing. The Book of Ruth coming as it does during the time of the judges in Israel, is a lot like that little rose. During the time of the judges in Israel, most of God's people had hardened themselves against the Lord. They couldn't care less what God wanted. They all did what was right in their own eyes. And as a result, they really couldn't care about others either. These two things, caring about God and caring about others, are directly related to one another. When the first is absent, the second one will be as well. The time of the judges illustrates this. God was forgotten, children were neglected, parents were not honored, and brothers hated brothers. In Judges chapter 19, there's an awful story about a Levite, a religious man, who allowed his wife to be gang-raped for one whole night just to save his own skin. And when he got up in the morning, mind you, he slept through all this, when he got up in the morning, she was dead, and he couldn't care less. These two things, caring about God and caring about others, are directly related to each other. When one is absent, the other will be as well. Our times illustrate this. God has been forgotten. 
Children are being neglected. In our state of Arkansas alone, over 5,000 children are in the custody of the state because of parental neglect and abuse. And that number would be much higher if there were simply more foster homes available for these children. And worse than that, we find out that the state isn't doing such a great job of taking care of these kids either. Elderly parents are putting nursing homes and often forgotten by their children. And man's inhumanity to man is a matter of daily record. G.K. Chesterton, the English writer, said one time that he couldn't figure out why the church had given up on the doctrine of total depravity because it was the only Christian doctrine that could be proven empirically. Just this last week, we heard about a financial institution that was cheating its clients, about a drug company that was jacking up the prices on life-saving drugs, all in the interest of people who are already wealthy getting wealthier. These people couldn't care less. When we harden our hearts against God, we will also harden ourselves against others. And the time of the judges in Israel was as hard as concrete. But right there in the midst of all of this spiritual hardness, where we wouldn't expect to find it, is the beautiful little story of Ruth with its account of two people who did care about God and, as a result, also cared about others. Earlier in the book, you're probably already familiar with the story, but you know that Ruth gave up all worldly advantages in her native land to come to a foreign land, to Israel, so that she could care for her elderly mother. She had come to trust in the God of Israel and she wanted to be with his people and do her duty to her mother-in-law. Today we want to look at Boaz who was also a man who cared about God and therefore cared about others. Namely, he cared about Ruth and Naomi. Ultimately, of course, we know that it's God who cares for people. But God's normal way of doing that is to care for people in need of care through other people. In verse 12 of Ruth chapter 2, Boaz pronounced this blessing on Ruth. He said, May the Lord reward your work. And your wages be full from the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to seek refuge. But Boaz didn't just invoke a blessing on Ruth. He actually became the instrument of that blessing in her life. This is the way God normally works. He cares for people through other people. And Boaz was a man who couldn't care more. What exactly is involved in being a person who couldn't care more? Our text this morning mentions three things. The first thing that's involved in being a person who couldn't care more is 
perceiving the need. In his book, uh, The Church at the End of the 20th Century, Francis Schaeffer predicted that by the end of the 20th century, and we're past that now, by the end of the 20th century, that the American people would only have two values, personal peace and affluence. Personal peace, he said, was a desire not to be bothered by other people's problems. And that's why we have seen a tendency in this country to turn over more of the care of the poor, the hungry, the elderly, and the sick to the state. We simply don't want to be bothered with other people's problems. And our affluence, at least for the time being, allows us to get away with that. But we also use our affluence to isolate ourselves from people who are in need. I have a friend who recently built a new home, and after they had moved in, I asked him uh, how he liked it. And he said, well, they only made one mistake, and that was that they didn't build the privacy, privacy fence high enough. I mean, this man is living in a neighborhood, but he doesn't want anything to do with neighbors. And isn't the electric garage door opener a wonderful invention? Remember when you used to have to get out of the car to open the door? And there was always the chance you might run into the dreaded neighbor. But with the electric garage door opener, no more problems. You just drive straight in your house and you don't need to be bothered by anyone you don't want to be bothered by. One of the trends in the church that I have seen develop in my lifetime is a decline in the practice of Christian hospitality. It used to be that Christians' homes were welcoming inns to strangers. But now they have become more like protective castles. We don't invite people into our homes anymore, much less strangers. James Dobson was asked about this in an interview that he did with Leadership Magazine, and this is what he had to say. He said, I'm convinced Americans are desperate for a sense of community. Eventually, many of these lonely people search for fellowship in a church setting, but what happens when they arrive at that sanctuary? Often they encounter busy, harassed people who are focused on their own needs. Now, certainly Christian people have been trained to be friendly to newcomers, but their response is superficial. Sure glad you came today will not suffice for a follow-up phone call and invitations to dinner and genuine lasting friendships. I wish I could convince my fellow Christians that the most productive form of outreach is right under our noses. Passing out tracts and knocking on doors have their place in spreading the gospel, but nothing links families to Christ like linking them to the established community of faith. That's why Sunday is an exhausting day for Shirley and me. We work hard to reach those whom we feel need our involvement. Sometimes it's a couple standing alone in a Sunday school class. Perhaps they've attended the church for five years or more, but the social awkwardness is evident on their faces. Even though we attend a friendly church, I occasionally become irritated by the lack of dedicated workers in this critical task of caring for people. It is, in my opinion, the most important family ministry a church can implement. 
How can we perceive the need of people who need our care if we isolate them ourselves from them? Being a person who couldn't care more means learning how to perceive the need. It means caring enough to find out who needs our care. Boaz was an important man in Bethlehem. He owned land. He had servants. He was an, off, uh, an official on the city council. And yet we also know that he was a very caring person because he perceived the need of an immigrant gleaner in one of his fields. Now, it wasn't natural for an important man like Boaz to notice someone who in that society was the poor of the poor, someone very insignificant. And Boaz didn't just notice her, he also asked questions about her. He wanted to know who she was, where she came from, and what her situation was. Boaz was a man who couldn't care more. And God wants us, his people, to be just like Boaz people who couldn't care more. The first thing involved then in being a person who couldn't care more is perceiving the need. The second thing that's involved in being a person who couldn't care more is performing our duty. First, we must perceive the need, but that's just the beginning. One of my favorite peanut cartoons shows Snoopy outside in front of his doghouse, and he's surrounded by about three feet of snow on all sides, and he's shivering. Then the panel switches to inside the house where Charlie and Lucy and Linus are looking out at Snoopy. And then it shows them putting on their warm coats and their hats and their boots, And they go out to see Snoopy, and each of them pats Snoopy on the head and say, Be of good cheer, Snoopy, be of good cheer. And then they turn around and march back into the house, leaving Snoopy out there in the freezing cold. First, we must perceive the need, but then we must perform our duty. Boaz was a man who cared about God, and he cared about others, and he knew the Old Testament commandment to love one another as ourselves. We all know what our duty is, don't we? We read about it earlier in the service in the parable of the Good Samaritan, but in both the Old and the New Testament, we find the command that we are to love our neighbor as ourselves. That's what it means to perform our duty. And who is our neighbor? Well, Jesus answered that in the parable, didn't he? Our neighbor is anyone that we are in the position of helping. That is our neighbor. You'll remember that the Levite and the priest in the parable of the Good Samaritan perceived the need. They couldn't help it. The man was lying right there in the road. 
but they didn't perform their duty. They didn't love their neighbor as themselves. They couldn't care less. But Boaz was a man who couldn't care more. Sometimes loving our neighbor as ourselves will mean standing up for their rights. Now we know from scripture that we are not to demand our own rights, but again and again in scripture we find commands to stand up for the rights of others, especially for the poor and for those who are being mistreated. And that's what Boaz did. He recognized that Ruth had a right in Israel based on the law of leveret marriage, which was given by God. He was familiar with that law. Ruth didn't demand her rights, but Boaz, in loving his neighbor as himself, stood up for Ruth's rights. And he took the time to call the officials of the city together and to confront this man with his responsibility, but the man was not willing to fulfill that responsibility. He didn't care about God, and therefore he didn't care about others. He didn't care what the law said his responsibility was, and therefore he didn't care about Ruth and Naomi either. All he cared about was himself. He was a man who couldn't care less. Boaz was a man who couldn't care more. And when the man would not fulfill his responsibility to perform the law in Ruth and Naomi's behalf, then Boaz stepped in as the next closest kinsman. He fulfilled his duty to love his neighbor as himself, even though it meant paying a price by him. By the way, what Boaz did for Ruth and Naomi was not really optional. It was not just a good deed. Boaz was performing his duty. He was operating according to the law that God had given Israel. Boaz cared about God and therefore he cared about Ruth and Naomi as well. When the Levite and the priest went by the wounded Samaritan, they weren't just failing to do a good deed. They were sinning against God and their fellow man. They were people who couldn't care less. But God wants us to be people like Boaz, a people who couldn't care more. So the second thing that's involved in being a person who couldn't care more is performing our duty. And the third thing that's involved in being a person who couldn't care more is paying the price. Caring for other people does not come cheaply. It will cost us time, it's inconvenient, and it will cost us money. C.S. Lewis, uh, another uh, Christian writer that I know most of you are familiar with, uh, you're studying one of his books uh, right now. But he took in an elderly widow who lived with him until she died. And she lived with him many, many years. To make matters worse, she was a nag, and she never fully appreciated everything that Lewis did for her. 
It cost Lewis time, it was inconvenient for him, and it cost him money. But C.S. Lewis understood that caring for people involved paying the price. It took Boaz time, it was inconvenient for him, and it cost him money to marry Ruth and to buy Naomi's land. He was jeopardizing his own inheritance in order to love them in the way that they needed to be loved, to show them the care that they needed. But Boaz, like C.S. Lewis, was a man who cared about God. And therefore he cared about others and was willing to pay whatever price was necessary. The kinsman, the close kinsman, who should have fulfilled his responsibility, was willing to buy Naomi's land. That would have been gain for him. But he wasn't willing to marry Ruth because then the land would have remained in the name of Naomi and Elimelech, so that they would remain property owners in Israel. There was no gain in that for him. And this was a man who couldn't care less. Boaz was a man who couldn't care more. Of course, we always wonder, well, I only have so many resources. What what can I do? to really take care of the needs that I encounter. Well, I think sometimes we lack a little faith in believing God's promise that we find in 2 Corinthians 9, 6 through 11. The Apostle Paul says, Now this I say, he who sows sparingly shall also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully shall also reap bountifully. Let each one do just as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness You will be enriched in everything for all liberality, which through us is producing thanksgiving to God. Did we not just see this operating this morning when Tim announced what the giving had been for these mercy ministries this morning, that all expenses were covered and even more? God provides. When people have a heart for God and care for others, God will provide our needs. C.S. Lewis understood this principle. And he said in one of his books, he said, in scripture, sacrificial giving is not the exception, it is the rule. Many of us consider the question of how much in terms of how little. The cross of Christ and the gift of God's Son stand in direct contrast to those who seek to give so little. I do not believe one can settle how much we ought to give. I'm afraid the only safe rule is to give more than we can spare. Why? Because when we have a heart for God, 
and we have a heart for others. God will provide what we need to take care of his people. A man was being examined once at Presbytery, and he was asked why he thought uh, God wanted him in the ministry. Why, why should he be a pastor? And the man answered that he thought that God had need of him. To which one of the thoroughly reformed brothers stood up and lectured this man for a while on the fact that God is sovereign and God doesn't need anything or anybody. After he finished, this man turned to Luke chapter 3 where it tells about Jesus preparing for his triumphal entry into Jerusalem and he read Luke 11.3 where it says after Jesus had commanded his disciples to go in and get a donkey for him and he said if anyone says to you why are you doing this you say the Lord has need of it and immediately he will send it back here. And this man concluded that if the Lord at one time had needed a donkey, certainly it was possible that God might need him. Does God need us to care for other people? God is sovereign. God, this is God's world. It all belongs to him. God is active in the affairs of this world. Does God need us? to care for other people? In an absolute sense, no. God can do all things. But in the normal course of things, it has been God's way of operating to care for people through other people. The book of Ruth makes very clear the sovereignty of God. And yet... God protected and provided for Ruth and Naomi through a man, Boaz, a man who couldn't care more. And God wants us, his people, to be just like Boaz, a people who couldn't care more. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Heavenly Father, we have to confess that our hearts often are hardened towards you and they are hardened to others as well. Father, we fail to love our neighbor as ourselves and we excuse it because we didn't have the time, it was inconvenient, or we don't have the resources to do that. Father, we don't confess that in failing to love our neighbor as ourselves, we are sinning against you and sinning against our fellow man. Father, thank you that you are a merciful God, as we prayed earlier. And thank you for the forgiveness that is ours. And we just pray, Father, that you would give us hearts that love you and that express that love by loving others. Father, bless this church. With its emphasis on personality, many, many.